Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 7 of Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 the king and his work part two there is no need to expatiate upon edward's claims of statesmanship contemporaries compared him to henry the second and certainly no other one of our earlier kings can be rightly put in the same high place as edward but though there is a real relation between the work of henry and that of edward and though Henry was perhaps the greater and more original mind of the two, yet Edward's task was complicated by difficulties of a subtle kind to which Henry had been a complete stranger. It was Edward's difficult task to adjust the despotism which Henry had set up to meet the national aspirations after liberty and the popular cry to control the state, which in the twelfth century had not yet arisen. That Edward abundantly succeeded in his difficult task will be sufficiently clear in nearly every page of the history of his reign. Without any great originality of character, without that insight and foresight which genius alone can give, Edward was able to apply to the great problems of statecraft an intellect of a high order, clear, logical, orderly, and decisive. But his character was stronger than his intellect, and his tenacity of purpose and pertinacity in conduct were seldom excelled by the excitable kings and statesmen of the Middle Ages. It is a commonplace to dwell on the legislative mind of Edward, but it is a very superficial view of the great king's character that regards him simply as a mere lawyer, even a great lawyer like his friend Bishop Burnell. It would be truer to say that Edward's chief merit as a legislator is that he knew how to follow the lines laid down by his ministers and judges. The statute book tells us nothing of the motives and springs of conduct but it is hard not to believe that the main merit of Edward's work as a lawgiver belongs to his advisers. Theirs, at least, was the initiative. It is merit enough in a born king that he knew whose advice to follow and in what direction he was to go. The personal characteristics of Edward come out even more in his statecraft and his generalship than in his legislation. As a soldier, Edward's character is perhaps most completely seen. He was the true knight of chivalry, brave to recklessness, careless of his life, 
careless of all ulterior consequences, throwing his whole soul into the fierce rush of the feudal charge which scattered the Londoners at Lewis, or wrestling hand to hand in long and doubtful struggle with the fierce Adam Gordon or the treacherous Count of Chalon. But with increasing experience, the knightly hero grew into a real general. The same power of self-restraint which marks every side of Edward's character enabled him to curb the rash valour which he had learnt in the tourney and tilt-yard, and aspire to a degree of tactical and strategic skill rare indeed in the age in which he lived. His greatest military qualities were his capacity of profiting by adverse experience and his rare skill in varying his method of warfare to meet the tactics adopted by the enemy. In his continental campaigns, Edward remained to the end a mere captain of feudal chivalry. But he very clearly realized that there were times and places where the heavily armed mounted knight was of little military value. His early defeats by the light-armed and nimble Welsh footmen taught him the value of a dexterous and daring irregular infantry and suggested to him that policy of carrying on Welsh warfare like a great siege, which proved so irresistible in 1277 and 1282. Moreover, Edward paid a high tribute to the conquered Welsh in the large use which he made of them in all his subsequent campaigns, and notably in the wars in Scotland and Flanders. In the same way, Edward had the quickness and the skill to borrow from Montfort the tactics that had proved fatal to his own and his father's cause at Lewis, and bettering his lesson, he turned his uncle's teaching against him in his cleverly won victory at Evesham. In his old age, Edward was not too proud to learn another lesson. He had the eyes to discern that the close array of the Scottish infantry at Falkirk could not be broken by the mere rush of a cavalry charge. He won the crowning victory of his life by his skillful employment of archers to break up the squares of the Scots with their missiles. His combination of the heavy cavalry of England with the light infantry and archers of Wales prepared the way for the more complete working out of this system which resulted from the famous English victories during the Hundred Years' War with France. The two chief lines of military progress in subsequent generations lay in the development of a trained force of infantry and in the increase of the efficiency of the bowmen. In both these respects, Edward is a forerunner, though perhaps a half-blind one, of the improvements in the art of war which marked the next two centuries. The great men of the 13th century embody the best ideals of the Middle Ages, but there is also something modern in their character and ambitions. Edward himself partakes of this twofold nature. As a man, he seems almost purely medieval. Yet, as an English statesman, he could conceive the idea of a national state ruled by a strong king, 
but controlled by a popular parliament. As a diplomatist, he could grasp the conception of a European equilibrium to be maintained by a judicious policy of mediation on the part of his island kingdom. As a British patriot, he longed for the time when England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland were all parts of the same kingdom. As a warrior, he dimly foreshadowed the battle array of Crecy or Agincourt. In many-sided as was his activity, there was a perfect balance and harmony between the various elements of his policy. His eulogizers and detractors have as a rule fixed on some one side of his policy and confined their praise or blame to that side alone. It is only when we take in his character as a whole that we can fully realize how real are his claims to be regarded as a greatest of the Plantagenets. No rulers of England, save William the Conqueror, Henry II, Henry VIII, and Cromwell, can be compared with him either as regards force of character and strength of intellect, or as regards the greatness and the permanence of their influence on the history of our land. Edward's family and court next demand our attention. He was strongly amenable to domestic influence, and the weak and tender sides of his father's character continued to have an influence for good over him many years after experience had taught him the folly and evil of his father's policy. His mother, Eleanor of Provence, continued to have a strong hold over him until her death in 1291. His close affection and devotion to his first wife, Eleanor of Castile, need not be further dwelt upon. He was warmly attached to his sister Margaret, the wife of Alexander III of Scotland, and his care for the welfare of his nephew, John of Brittany, is the best proof that Edward was equally devoted to his other sister, Beatrice, the wife of the Duke of Brittany. Edward's only brother, Edmund, Earl of Lancaster, was not quite the man to exercise a strong influence over anyone. But Edward's care of his brother's interests is seen in the vast estates which gradually accumulated round the founder of the greatest baronial house of medieval England, and in the trust with which he allowed Edmund to manage his diplomacy and lead his armies at the most critical period of his reign. Edmund himself was Earl of Lancaster and Leicester and Derby, receiving after Evesham the confiscated titles and estates of Simon de Montfort and Robert Ferrers. By arranging the marriage of Edmund's heir Thomas with the heiress of his most trusted follower, Henry Lacy, the Earl of Lincoln, Edward still further increased the greatness of the Lancastrian house and made possible that extraordinary combination of power which Earl Thomas, as the head of the Lord's Ordainers, was able to bring against Edward II. Nor was Edward inattentive to his more distant kinfolk. His uncle, Richard, King of the Romans, had a real influence over him, 
he was devotedly attached to Richard's eldest son, his cousin Henry of Almain, and strove hard to avenge his tragic death. Richard's younger son and successor, Earl Edmund of Cornwall, had always a high place in his cousin's affections and counsels. Edward was the father of a large family, though but few of his children attained manhood, and only three reached middle life. By Eleanor he had thirteen children, four sons and nine daughters. But of the four sons, the two eldest, John, 1266 to 1272, and Henry, died 1274, both died in early boyhood. Alfonso, the third son, born in 1273 at Bayonne, died in 1284, a few months after the birth of his youngest brother, Edward of Carnarvon, born in 1284, less fortunate in his unglorious life than his brothers in their early graves. Of Eleanor's nine daughters, four died as children. Of those that survived, the eldest was Eleanor, born in 1264, and married to the Count of Bar in 1293. She died in her thirty-fifth year. The next was Joan of Acre, born in 1272, during her father's crusade, and destined in her childhood to be the bride of Hartmann, the son of Rudolf of Habsburg. She was married in 1290 to Earl Gilbert of Gloucester, Edward's old ally in the struggle against Montfort, who was nearly thirty years older than herself. After Gloucester's death in 1295, Joan gave herself to the simple knight Ralph of Montermer. Edward was very angry at his daughter's disparagement and threw Ralph into prison, but Joan defended herself with great spirit and energy, and her father, who loved his children, soon relented, and finally gave his low-born son-in-law the custody of the great Gloucester inheritance. She died in the same year as her father, transmitting to her son, the young Earl Gilbert, who died so gallantly on the field of Bannockburn, some spark of her father's great spirit. The next daughter, Margaret, 1275 to 1318, married Duke John of Brabant in 1290 and lived to the then respectable age of 43. Mary, the fourth daughter, born in 1279, was doomed from early childhood to take the veil at Amesbury to please her grandmother, Eleanor of Provence, who ended her life in semi-monastic retirement in that famous convent. Edward was unwilling to sacrifice the child, but yielded to his mother's pressure. She attained at least her fifty-fourth year, an age far greater than that reached by her brothers and sisters. The youngest daughter, Elizabeth, surnamed the Welshwoman, born at Rudlan in 1282, was married first to John, Count of Holland, in 1297, and secondly to Humphrey, Earl of Hereford, in 1302. She died in 1316. Eleanor of Castile died in 1290, and after nine years of solitude, 
Edward married a second time in 1299. But his second marriage was partly at least the result of political calculations, and Edward's second queen, Margaret of France, the sister of Philip the Fair, is a far more shadowy figure in our history than the gracious Eleanor of Castile. She is vaguely described as a fair and marvelously virtuous lady. A girl of eighteen, married to an old man of sixty, could never stand in the place of the faithful partner of Edward's youth. She bore Edward three children. The eldest, Thomas, born at Brotherton in Yorkshire in 1300, became the Earl of Norfolk and died in 1338. The second, Edmund, was born at Woodstock in 1301 and was made Earl of Kent. His unlucky end in 1330 is one of the worst stains on the regency of Mortimer and Isabella on behalf of the young Edward III. The third child of the second marriage was a daughter named Eleanor, born in 1306, who died when quite a child. Edward's plans for the settlement of his family are of great historical importance. The younger sons he provided for with English earldoms, while the daughters were married to foreign princes whose alliance was of importance, or to great English earls, that their tendency to join the opposition ranks might be counterbalanced by their close personal connection with the royal house. In this respect, Edward's policy anticipates that of Edward III. But like the more famous family settlement of Edward III, it was something of a failure. Edward's ministers fill a large part in the history of his reign. Though the scanty chronicles and the barren formal legal records from which we get most of our information make it hard for us to assign to the king and his helpers their due share of merit and render it almost impossible for us to get any very clear notion of the personal characteristics of even the greatest statesmen that stood round Edward's throne. Edward's own kinsfolk take a considerable position among his counsellors. His brother, Edmund of Lancaster, his representative in Guienne, his cousin, Edmund of Cornwall, the regent during the long absence between 1286 and 1289, his nephew, John of Brittany, his faithful vice-regent during the most critical period of his dealings with Scotland, all served Edward with the utmost loyalty and were entirely trusted by him. Even the foreign relatives who, after the storms of the barons' wars, scarcely dared to show their faces in England, still continued to enjoy Edward's confidence abroad. All through his reign, Le Lusignan helped him in Gascony. His cousin, Count Amadeus the Great of Savoy, rendered him most important assistance in his later foreign policy. From the same Savoyard land came John de Grailly, the faithful seneschal of Aquitaine, and Otto of Grandison, or Grandson, who came from the town famous in after ages for the crushing defeat of Charles the Bold by the Swiss Confederates, and who was a very important figure in the diplomatic history of the 
latter part of Edward's reign. At home, Edward's chief ministers were Englishmen, for the most part ecclesiastics, and though of gentle birth, they but seldom belonged to the highest orders of society. Foremost among them is Robert Burnell, the Shropshire squire's son, who became the most dexterous of chancery lawyers, and who, attaching himself to Edward when he was still but Earl of Chester and Duke of Aquitaine, remained united to him by the closest ties of personal friendship and harmony of policy until his death in 1292. Edward loved Burnell so well that he strove, even before his father's death, to make him Archbishop of Canterbury, and as soon as he became king, secured for him the Chancellorship and the Bishopric of Bath and Wells. Burnell was undoubtedly a consummate lawyer, a skillful diplomatist, and a thoroughly faithful minister. But his private character was stained by licentiousness and greed that stand in strong contrast to the purity and economy of the king. Even his wonderful munificence did not make Burnell popular, Yet there is no single minister of whom we can say more clearly that he was a necessary element in the greatness of the reign. He probably deserves the largest share of the credit of the great legislative achievements of Edward I. Burnell is the highest type of Edward's lawyer statesman. Next to him comes John Kirkby, Bishop of Ely, the subtle financier to whose doings we shall often again have occasion to refer. Judges like Hangham and Britain and civilians like the Italian legist Francesco Accursi, of whom we shall speak later, filled a subordinate position in Edward's court, and while giving technical details and scientific form to their master's work, had no great share in determining its spirit. After Burnell, the three leading ministers of Edward were Henry Lacey, Earl of Lincoln, Anthony Beck, Bishop of Durham, and Walter Langdon, Bishop of Lichfield. Henry Lacey, Earl of Lincoln, was the only one of the great earls who remained unswervingly faithful to Edward and who, despite his great name and vast estates, never shirked labor or trouble in the service of his master. He was courteous, handsome, and active, as brave in war as ripe in counsel. He fought for Edward's cause both as a general and as a diplomatist. In Wales, Scotland, and France, we find constant traces of his activity. When Edward became king, Lincoln had but barely attained his majority. Until his death in 1311, he never faltered in his allegiance, his regard for the father leading him to give what support he could to Edward II, even when the young king most flagrantly went against his father's policy. Unfortunate in his domestic life, Lincoln lost his two sons by violent deaths, and by the surrender of his two earldoms of Lincoln and Salisbury to his daughter Alice, whom Edward married to his own nephew Thomas of Lancaster, 
the old earl handed over to the royal house the great estates which all through his life had been devoted to the loyal service of the crown. Antony Beck, Bishop of Durham, is another striking figure among Edward's ministers. The son of a wealthy Lincolnshire lord, he was elevated when still a young man to the great Palatine See of Durham. His love of pomp, luxury, and munificence well became the holder of one of the greatest posts in the church, and one who was also secular lord of the rich county of Durham, which he ruled as freely with his crozier as Edward ruled his own patrimony of Chester with his sword. Beck's attitude to politics, like that of the Earl of Lincoln, was essentially that of a great magnate, but he was for many years as faithful as Burnell himself in his devotion to the royal service and honorably distinguished from the Bishop of Bath by the purity of his private life. Yet Beck was a soldier and a statesman rather than a bishop, and never shone to greater advantage than when, at the head of his knights, he did good service for his master in the campaigns against the Scots, or when, at the head of a pompous embassy, he built up a close alliance between Edward and Adolf, king of the Romans. But Beck never forgot that he was a great prelate, and toward the end of the reign he joined the clerical opposition and forfeited the favor of the king. His elder brother, Thomas Beck, Bishop of St. David's, was also a prelate of great importance during this reign, doing nearly as much for the king in Wales as Antony a few years later did for the king in Scotland. Walter Langton is as much the minister of the end of Edward's reign as Burnell is the statesman of its earlier years. He began life as a poor man, became a clerk of the king's chancery, and after Burnell's death drifted gradually into the position of Edward's chief advisor. In 1295, he was made treasurer and in 1296 bishop of Lichfield. He kept the treasury until Edward's death. Like Burnell, his private character was not beyond reproach. But like Burnell, he served his master with unswerving fidelity. He shared very largely in the unpopularity which Edward contracted in the later violent years of his reign and was made the scapegoat of his master's policy after the old king's death. Edward's chief ministers were of exemplary fidelity, but one of the king's constant difficulties was with his subordinate agents, whose violence and greed often defeated the king's best-laid schemes and involved their master in odium that, though natural, was hardly deserved. Even the lawyers required the constant eye of the master to keep them in order. During Edward's long absence abroad between 1286 and 1289, the royal officials committed so many misdeeds that the king on his return was obliged to make a stern example. He almost cleared out the judicial bench of the greedy and venal judges, who with Hangham at their head had wrested the law to make their own fortune. Even less satisfactory were the ruffianly bailiffs and sheriffs whose misrule gave the lie to Edward's policy of sound government and equal justice in Wales. 
more hated still were the close-fisted italian merchants who farmed the king's revenue and whose expulsion from the realm was one of the chief demands made by the people when edward's death brought about a new period of weak rule but in no medieval country were things any better than in the england of edward i even the trained clerks and knights of the french royal household conceived that their devotion to the king privileged them to commit any acts of violence they thought fit among his subjects such was the king his family and his court called to the throne in twelve seventy two edward first set foot in england in twelve seventy four the first half of his reign saw him mainly occupied with the reduction of north wales and the carrying out of a great series of legislative changes he was also very busy with his elaborate and successful foreign policy to which after the settlement of wales he was able to devote a more exclusive attention hence his long absence from england from twelve eighty six to twelve eighty nine his return was followed by the last great memorials of his legislation the second period of edward's reign begins about twelve ninety his chief occupation was now the attempted conquest and settlement of scotland a task complicated by rebellion in wales and by the vigorous attack of philip the fair on gascony moreover edward was now confronted by a revival of the baronial opposition which forced upon him constitutional changes whose completion is one of the greatest results of the second half of his reign a fresh trouble arose from the clerical opposition that already troublesome in edward's earlier years now came to a head the result tried the king's severest energies but he never succumbed to his difficulties and though he died with his work all undone he left the impress of his mind and action on every branch of the national life it is now our task to go over in more detail the history thus outlined in brief for the first period of the reign it will be most convenient to take each aspect of edward's policy separately and devote distinct chapters to his foreign policy his welsh policy his legislation his dealings with the estates and the working out of the parliamentary system and the beginnings of his troubles in scotland after twelve ninety two another course will be advisable the complex troubles which now beset the king can only be fully realized if we follow a more chronological method and see year by year how edward's dealings with scotland france the baronage and the church were all woven together in one inextricable whole and acted and reacted upon each other when both sides of our task are done we shall be in a better position to measure his claims to be a great english statesman end of section seven Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, 
where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.